वेलकम टू सन टॉक The Sin Talkers around the table today discuss the future of prediction. We'll think about predictions while wondering what can and cannot be predicted. Is more data always better? Can one always separate data from noise? Must all predictions be explainable to be meaningful? How much of natural history of Earth is predictable? do humans make it less so how predictable are we will human behavior be found to be more and more predictable in the long run can we confidently determine if there's life elsewhere in the universe what is the long term future of prediction is future always necessarily radically unpredictable and what is not so We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor G Jogesh Babu. He is a statistician and works with astronomers. He and his colleague from the astronomy department started the field of astrostatistics about 25 years ago. He is from Penn State University. Dr John Matthew He teaches history of science at Iser Pune. His primary interest is natural history extended to zoology and medicine. And Professor V.S. Subramanian. He is a professor of computer science at University of Maryland. He works in data mining, predictive modeling and machine learning. So we as uh, why don't we set the ball rolling with you um at a somewhat general place uh, and if we were to split data up and you primarily deal with data one would imagine um if we were to split data up into data coming from phenomena which are not human phenomena or mediated by human beings in some form or fashion and data which is in some way mediated or human linked or human derived data how is the nature of data different in these two contexts and we'll see and extend that to asking the prediction question which is the core question that we're dealing with today thank you it's a pleasure to be here thank you so you're asking about two things yeah. data that is generated more or less organically right uh by in a natural setting yeah and second data that's generated by humans yeah in a sense the two are not completely disjoint because mm-hmm. even data about say natural phenomena astronomy which professor jogesh babu will talk about later yeah. earthquakes animal movements yeah. must be collected by humans irrespective yeah. of whether the data is actually caused by an external so you're saying the collection layer is always human anyway in some form or fashion that's correct so in all of science data is collected typically by humans right <laughs> uh, possibly with sensors and other kinds of devices that have been created by humans but we're there somehow we're there somehow yeah. and so this distinction between the two is artificial right on the other hand there are specific examples such as on social media today twitter facebook where data is explicitly provided by humans 
uh, humans who are tweeting, humans who are writing posts on Facebook, sure. etc. So there is a distinction between the two, but by the time it starts looking like data to a data scientist like me, the collection mechanism uh, is almost always involves a human hand in it somewhere. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. And what about uh, noise? Is, uh, is, is human data more noisy or it doesn't matter? <laughs> um, like in a way, the question is how predictable are we? So when you look at large swaths of data about whether it, it could be tweets, it could be posts, it could be other kinds of data about society, a country, some large group of people, more than more than trivially small number. Um, what's predictable and what's not predictable? So this is a great question. So generally speaking, um, what is predictable depends upon several factors. Mm -hmm. So let's say there's a phenomenon we want to predict, whether something will or will not happen. Right. A two-way prediction. Whether it's predictable or not depends on, one, how much data have we gathered? Mm -hmm. Two, have we gathered the right data? The mm -hmm. factors that actually influence that outcome in the real world may involve many, many variables. If some of those variables are not collected, we're not likely to make the prediction correctly. Right. And third, for us in machine learning and predictive modeling, is the data balanced in the sense that do we have enough cases where the outcome occurred as well as enough cases where the outcome did not occur right. that we can make a prediction with some confidence. If you're doing two-way predictions, you need enough instances of both to That's be able correct. to... That's correct. And right. typically, the things we cannot predict well may be highly imbalanced. So what uh, would such an instance be? Well, uh, an instance might be uh, take a situation where you're looking for um, a very, very specific kind of malicious behavior in a network. Uh -huh. uh, in a computer system. Uh -huh. I think we would all agree that in most enterprises, most people in the enterprise are honest. Right. They're not trying to steal corporate data. Right. Uh, they're mostly benign. Right. So an organization which is trying to identify people who are trying to steal their intellectual property, for example, right. might have very, very few people like this that they've found in the past. Right. And so more than 99% of the people in the organization might be perfectly honest and the number of malicious and actors would be very small. Right, right, right. So paradoxically, your one, one, one's ability to catch malicious actors kind of depends on one's ability to have caught them in the past. <laughs> That's correct. Because unless you have that data, uh, you would presumably not be able to predict it in some way. But let's, let's flesh that out further, VS. So when you say... What would the nature of that data be? You just get to know the person there. So what are the attributes of a data of that nature? Let's say stealing corporate data in that, in that context. So before I answer that question, one mm. more complication yeah. in this case yeah. is that you have an adversary who's constantly adapting their behavior exactly. in order to elude detection. Right. And that basically means that models you might have learned in the past may be less relevant as the adversary changes mm -hmm. his or her behavior. Mm -hmm. So examples of the kinds of things you might look for are, we know that people who steal information are doing so typically for a reason. Right. You might have an employee who is highly upset right. at his or her company, and right. this might manifest itself in the form of rants and raves right. about how evil 
people or certain his bosses might be in the company. Uh, people might steal information because of financial hardship. Right. Uh, so you might want to look and say, uh, do we know anything about this person's financial history? Right. Are they falling into terrible debt? Right. Is he involved in gambling? Right. Uh, things like that. Uh, people also uh, uh, perform actions like this when their personal history is leaving them in a state of mind that is uh, brittle. Uh, when they're going through an acrimonious divorce, when they have terrible hardship in terms of health, etc. But a lot of this sounds quite qualitative, uh, VS. I mean, do you, you presumably don't capture data of that nature. An employer or a corporate entity wouldn't know the emotional state of each one of their employees or how how their marriages are going and so on. So... Um, it, it's, it sounds more in the tentative deduction and judgment as opposed to one where there is algorithms running and trying to spot something on a predictive basis, if you know what I mean. So w- what is one missing in this kind of a context? So actually, I think uh, <laughs> I'm going to uh, gently disagree Please. with that. Yeah. So right now, we have a fair amount of technology out there mm-hmm. to monitor and extract signals uh-huh. from text whether that text is email, whether it's something else, right. that can try and understand the intensity of emotion, right. such as fear, anger. So you can do emotional profiling just by That's tracking correct. or analyzing all the emails? Uh, if you have access to the emails right. and if you have the appropriate ethical safeguards in place. Right. right. So different organizations in different parts of the world right. uh, have obviously different standards in what is legally acceptable right. and what's ethically and morally acceptable. And when um, do things start getting predictable? So if there's a company with 10 people, I would imagine it's uh, different from a company with 100,000 people. So, and I, I understand these are not robust enough questions, but where do things start becoming more predictable from your standpoint? Well, I think things start, uh, a company with 10 people probably doesn't need this kind of technology. Sure. And the reason is that the individuals in the company know each other really well. Right. And have a pretty good idea of whether somebody's falling off the rails or not. In large corporations, on the other hand, with whole departments devoted to security, right. um, it's very hard for any single individual to n- know more than a handful of people. Right. And so it's in those kinds of environments where, first of all, there are more occurrences of malfeasance, number mm-hmm. one, which provides more training data from which to learn. Mm-hmm. And second, where there's a more greater necessity for this kind of monitoring. So I think you'd find this more in enterprises that are large enough uh, where these two factors play a role. Right, right, right. And when you say large enough, you're resisting putting a number to it. I am resisting putting a number to it, but I would imagine that this is more likely in organizations with at least a thousand people. Sure. So, Jogesh Babu, over to you. Obviously, the world of um, stars in the universe in general and what data you collect, uh, if we were to stick to the astrostatistic side in you, um, is hopefully relatively less emotion-ridden and less less, less weird, but what are the peculiarities in your case? What's the nature of data that you collect? What's the nature of predictions that you try to make and what are the pitfalls there? The mainly, there are some limitations. You know, if it is a faint object, it's, diffi- it's almost impossible to detect. Mm-hmm. So kind of... Uh, uh, what is known as, uh, in the field, truncation effect. So mm-hmm. there may be objects there which, which we cannot detect. And uh, in the data is such that uh, you have some information about uh, objects that you can detect and there are some objects that may not be there 
but that may be there but you are unable to detect it or you detect them only sporadically or not not oh uh, no not sporadically but with a different uh, uh, for example uh, the sky looks differently in visual light than in infrared than x-ray right. so kind of multivalent effect right. so you have to use uh, information from different telescopes to detect things and this uh, there is a statistical methodology to uh, model and uh, analyze such data uh, like t- t- when there are there is a truncation effect or where there is a censoring effect so you you may be able to see something uh, only if it is above certain level of uh, light but that seems like that seems like a solution which is technological you make better telescopes you do it in better ways the solution is not necessarily statistical or is it yeah uh, as the technology improves you may be able to detect more and more sure uh, like uh, what is happening in the last uh, 25 years uh, the amount of data collected is uh, becoming uh, 100 times or 1000 times more than what we used to do with a single telescope with a single astronomer nowadays what they do is we don't focus on a uh, single aspect earlier people used to uh, bid for time on with different telescopes and then when uh, let's look say, for specific things specific things specific phenomena a specific time of time period right. but now the trend is to have this uh, whole sky surveys like uh, sloan digital sky survey uh, uh, lsst so you do a survey and you capture everything you capture everything and the data is out there right so you mine the data sure uh it looks like specific. a backup of sorts you know everything that can yeah. be captured at any moment in yes. time and then you go back to it depending on what you're yes. looking for that's what is happening with the kepler telescope right. which is uh, uh, launched a uh, few years ago to detect planets outside solar system but right. within our galaxy right and it it points only to certain patch of the sky right uh, and uh, they collected about uh, 200000 uh, uh, stars uh, data on 200000 stars and data is there but uh, uh, i think in the, i think about 2 years ago uh, it lost some of the wheels so you cannot focus on that right and so data stopped coming so right. they reoriented its mission to look at only specific area and collect data but the large data that has been collected people are still going through this and finding planets in that and which are in habitable zone and which are not in habitable zones and such things there are a lot of statistics involved mainly based in statistics and various other things and and you know we'll go to vs very quickly uh, jogesh babu but when you say data what do you mean because yeah. the 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 universe is out there yeah. you train a telescope to it it could yeah. be an x-ray telescope yeah. or whatever yeah. but essentially you capture electromagnetic imprints yeah, radiation, on yes. radiation yeah. on on that Fort that's essentially what you do thing. yes right yes. yes you had a point you know i really like what jogesh just said right this idea of a sky survey which is capturing all the possible data you have right. available to you and then analyzing it after the fact is very similar to what computer scientists in many enterprises do today mm-hmm. right here on earth right. uh, as an example uh you know systems security managers in companies are gathering log data about virtually any transaction right. that's happening on their enterprise network right and so in a sense it's like your sky yes. survey except it's a survey of the digital activity yes. on your enterprise that's being gathered 
we try, because the time, one difference though, is that the time frames in astronomy are very different <laughs> than in cybersecurity, <laughs> uh, where, you know, we need to detect things right away. So we try in computer science to build methods that allow us, in many cases, to analyze the data really, really quickly, because figuring out that something anomalous has occurred one hour uh, after it occurred might be too far. Yeah, yeah. So I think the question we ask there is that because, and you're talking of digital imprints and digital data and digital data capture, um, is there something special that needs to be done because digital transactions or interactions are happening all the time? So is it just a question of capturing that or you actually design your systems in a manner that the ability to capture different kinds of activities is greater, if you know what I mean? So there are lots of methods out there today mm. to capture Mm. transactions on a network. Everything from the number of packets flowing sure. from a particular site, sure. what external connections are being made from within an organization, who's reading what, writing what. I mean, not necessarily what the content of those files is, but how many reads, writes are made. And then it's really a process of trying to spot the anomalous behavior in some form or fashion. Exactly. So just as in the case of the sky survey, they may not see the star or a distant uh, celestial object, but they can infer its presence by looking at the different signals that are coming uh, from the data. Here, too, you might infer the presence of something s suspicious in your transactions by What's the nature of your data file, Jogesh Babu? Is it, what does it look like? It's not a video, right? It's, it's not a video. It so, is uh, essentially, to simplest terms, photon counts. Let's make it, it complex. Yes. So, okay. so different photon counts of different entities. Different so, entities over time. So essentially sure. in some cases we have this uh, photometric data that means uh, uh, data in different wave bands. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing is uh, uh, spectroscopy data mm. that mm. means over a period, over continuous uh, spectrum. Mm. And another, uh, the most important thing is time series data. Mm -hmm. That's what is important for exoplanets and uh, discovery and uh, various other things and mm. classification of transients and so on and so forth. There's, there are some problems with this. Unlike uh, uh, standard uh, time series analysis in economics and other areas, the problem with astronomy data is you cannot continuously observe right? because of the location of the Earth. Even right. if you uh, have satellites, certain things you can only observe over a period of time. For right. example, we get uh, data from uh, Catalina uh, Transient Survey in from Pasadena, uh, from Caltech. Right. That data, sometimes you get, uh, uh, that's a very nice data. Uh, it is taken at 10-minute uh, intervals. We get it for about uh, five days, then a gap of six months. Right. Then get five days data. So right. the, the question is that, uh, if we look at telescope, te te telescopic data, the yes. way it's captured, does it ever look at the same snapshot again, if you know what I mean? And even if these are geostationary satellites or whatever yeah. and telescope stations somewhere there, um, the, the position of the Earth is always changing. The yes. universe is doing whatever it's doing. And no, I understand that in the larger scheme of things, we're as good as fixed. Um, but are, are, there, are there observational difficulties there? On? Yes, there are. Uh, for example, there are two things. One is, let's think about Kepler data that yes. is pointed at a particular uh, direction, so, section of the Milky Way galaxy. So it's fixed. fixed so the gaze is fixed. Gaze it looks is at fixed. the same thing. And also it is oriented when the, as the Earth moves, etc., so that it only looks at that particular area. Right. Whereas uh, the LSST, which is going to come... Uh, online in another three, four, 
uh, years. Right. It's a big sky survey uh, being built in Chile. Uh, it is going to take the whole sky, image of the whole sky, uh, every three days. So you get a kind of video kind of uh, image of that. But even that would be just a fraction of the Milky Way. No, that's for the uh, that's uh, goes much deeper into that, not just Milky Way beyond okay. that. Okay. Extra galactic. Sure, sure, so, sure, sure. Interesting. I think there's some interesting questions there. We'll jump to you, John, because your world of natural history and the the is is very different. Um, how is historical data different? And you know, let's take human beings out of this for a second and just look at things in a natural history context. Uh, what's the nature of the data that? natural historians such as you capture and how is that different and distinct from the kinds of things that we're talking about and we'll try and see how we can compare and contrast that all right i'm going to speak a bit as a biologist now please and i'm going to address an aspect that vs raised earlier and then i'll move to this other aspect if i may please so one aspect that you to which you drew attention, VS, is about the fact that most people are benign in in an organization, but there might be malign elements. And it seems to me that the interesting question here is how that might be modeled. Right. If you know that there's something that's minoritarian, is it essentially teetering on the precipice of game theory in some sense. And in biology, you deal with this from the point of view of the detection of cheats. Detection of cheats? Yeah, for Mm -hmm. instance. So let's take an example with butterflies with which I once worked. Sure. Okay, so there are very different ways in which different kinds of butterflies might try to avoid predation. Mm-hmm. Some might sequester chemicals in their bodies and then have flashy colors and such mm-hmm. like, and you say, don't even bother. Right? Mm-hmm. We're advertising that we are aposomatic, we are unconsumable, and you'll find out why at your peril. Mm-hmm. There but are, these are adaptive responses, these, these are, are camouflages. Abs- these absolutely, are... you've got camouflage, you've got mimicry, Sure. Where, pe- where animal, where the butterflies are actually perfectly palatable, but they're copying another system. And that but you're right, to... from the point of view of the predator, they're cheating. Potentially, at least the model is, I mean, yes. the mimic is. But over there, what's interesting is that the mimic has always to be lower in frequency of encounter than the model. Mm-hmm. Be- because what does it, that mean? It means that if you have more palatable forms that are, that are mimicking the form that is actually unpalatable. Then that becomes the, palatable. Then the, the frequency of encounter with the predator is going to be far more with the mimic than the model. Yes. Which completely makes the system break down. Yes. Now, this is an interesting parallel over here where it seems to me that it is important that the hacker or, or the malicious person in this, in this particular case must be at a minority level and depends in some sense upon the majority being benign, right? I mean, I can see this in another system of butterflies where you have mutualisms where ants protect a particular caterpillar in blue butterflies, lysenids, this particular group, which in turn 
secrete amino acids right. that the ants take up as sugar candy. Right. Now, what if there were, and this has actually been shown, to have some of those caterpillars provide relatively less of that and then enter this, this system where the ants already believe they're getting this and then happily chomp away at their brood. So you're getting carnivory in this particular system and you're cheating this lock and key mechanism that's been established. But it's again important that it is at a minority, which is why less than 0.5% of, yeah, of all Lepidoptera butterflies and moths do this. That's very and, interesting. And they depend upon the fact that the overwhelming majority are herbivorous. That's right. a very interesting point, isn't it? Because if there are 100 attributes and all 98 of them are like the majority, then presumably they're more difficult to detect, right? I mean, it's kind let of me, Let obvious. me take up this fascinating point that John has raised. Yeah. So, um, um, and I'll give you a very concrete example. Uh, I hate to call myself the predator, uh, but uh, DARPA ran a challenge mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years back in early 2015 where the goal of the challenge was to identify accounts on Twitter that were seeking to inappropriately and covertly influence opinion to be positive towards a certain topic. Right. They ran a challenge. And so in a sense, the teams that were participating in this challenge were the predators. And the team... and You the, had to identify those Right. So those in a accounts. sense, the prey... Were the analog of your butterflies were the accounts that were trying to do malicious acts. Yes. So, it, <laughs> so <laughs> you know, it's a great analogy, and I love the fact that you brought it up. We did not—I led the team that won the challenge. I was very fortunate, mm-hmm. uh, I might add. Uh, you know, any prediction, a little help, a little piece of luck is not is always unwelcome. Right. And the— accounts that were malicious did many of the things that he just talked about. For example, uh, they were supposed to influence opinion to be positive towards a topic. Mm-hmm. But in fact, some of the accounts started out being highly negative towards right. that same topic. Just as a deception exercise? Well, yes. Uh, they well, wanted, they actually, there were two reasons. It. Right. One was to deceive us, perhaps. Right. But the other, I say perhaps because I don't know what their intent actually was. Sure. And second... It was to gain followers on Twitter uh, from a particular movement that was in favor of the topic of the, you know, sure. was um, sure um, vigorous movement. So um, it was for two reasons, but both were intended for the same purpose that the butterfly changes its colors and camouflages itself. It was to camouflage. So, so if we jump forward a few steps, what what was your counter move or your counter strategy to that? So I don't I, want to call I'm it counter sure. strategy yeah. because we didn't use any game theory in this solution. Sure, sure. Um, what we realized was that in an adversarial setting, mm-hmm. you can, and in fact, I tell my machine learning students this all the time, do not be happy with the data you've got and do not make predictions based on the data you've got mm-hmm. and, the, and the variables you've got. Always stay alert for what else you can do. What we did, this is what's called an unsupervised problem because we, un, an unsupervised problem is one where you have no information to start with right. on who the malicious actors are. You have no so-called training data. 
Right. So you're starting from You don't start zero. from a sample or a base it, that you have to narrow down to. You well, just, we have yeah. seen bots in the past. Sure. But the generative process used to create bots in this challenge may have been completely different right. from what we saw in the past. Right. So basically, what we have to do is to figure out what are the characteristics from ground zero yes. of these malicious bots. And so what we have to be is very agile. It's just as humans are. When we learn something, as John mentioned earlier, about how these butterflies are camouflaging themselves, you would expect that the predators are eventually figuring this out as well and are taken in by some of the deception, right. but not by others. Yeah, even and the so, predator learns. Yeah, the predator is not stupid either. Yes. It learns from its behavior. I mean, I remember in India, in the old days, people would walk in jungles and they would wear a mask at the back of their head so that the tiger lurking in the jungle thought yeah. they were... Um, you know, facing them. Right. And, I mean, I'll let uh, John correct my historical record here. Uh, this is just what I read in the folk stories about India. Sure. But the tigers quickly figured out that this is bogus, <laughs> and <laughs> they learned to distinguish between a man facing towards them and a man walking away from them. Well, that's interesting. And they would leap on him from the back. It's exactly the same thing. So, John, are there counter moves <laughs> and counter strategies to that kind of deception? How does it happen ecologically? Well, it's interesting. I mean, in the 1970s, the, the analogy was made to Lewis Carroll's work, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Right. And the suggestion was there was something that was introduced called the Red Queen hypothesis. Yes. And the suggestion, of course, with that the Red Queen can, is that you, you need to keep running to be faster in the same and faster place. in order to stay in the same place. Yes. Right? And so... Part of the issue over here is whether, say, in an ant plant situation, mm -hmm. the, uh, the plant starts to secrete different kinds of chemicals, mm -hmm. right, to keep the ant away from, from completely defoliating what it's doing, right? Right. The ant, in turn has a series of options, right? One, does it shift to another host? Yeah. Two, does it start moving to a different part of the plant? Yeah. Right? So these, and this becomes easier for the ant than the plant in some sense. Because they're mobile. Precisely. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. And so you do have Their degrees this. of freedom are higher, they can take a wider range of actions. All this can happen, right? Yes. Now, in some cases, it might be an aphid feeding on the plant. <laughs> but then the plant might conscript ants by sending out a particular signal, which then draws the ant to feed upon the aphid that's feeding upon the plant. <laughs> right. So therefore, you have this entire ecosystem in place. So you can literally emit noise. I mean, so you can try and confuse literally, the other side. Yeah. Literally. Yes. In a way that's very different from statistical noise, right? But it's, yes. Uh, yes, actually, this is good noise for the plant, right? So, yes, yes, and yes. I, and those are straight examples, and this is studied a great deal in terms of complex ecology. Right, right, so, yeah. right, right, right. And if we were to shift from ecology, which is obviously very, very contextual, to the somewhat wider swath of evolution, and we just try to see whatever may have happened over the last several billions of years or several hundreds of millions of years, um, how predictable is, is 
is speciation, how predictable is extinction, how predictable is whatever happens in the natural world. And we understand that there will be a great degree of randomness, a great degree of introduction of events because of chance events and so on. But one is trying to understand this extent question. How, how predictable is it by and large? It's awful, right? And part of it is because of the nature of perturbations that have occurred over time, right? So, But, but you, you're talking of extreme external events like a meteorite coming and hitting the earth or something, which right, is... Right, but the point is, look at the disproportionate impact, impact upon the biota, which yeah. then opens niche space, yeah. right, for a whole slew of other things to come in. I mean, in some senses, there might be those who may bemoan the passing of the dinosaurs. Right. But that, in some indirect sense, gave us a shot. Yes, no, absolutely. <laughs> right? No, but for example, and you know, Jogesh Babu will hopefully not take offense at this, but if there were no astronomical events in the context of Earth, if there was no comets or meteorites impinging upon Earth, w- would we be a relatively more predictable biota? Not at all, because there was a series of things that happened which made the oceans more anoxic. Sure. And this was actually the mother of all extinctions. So it's because the dinosaurs went out that what happened at the KT boundary or right. the Cretaceous tertiary boundary about right. 65 million years ago right. that people talk about. But it's frankly what happened about 250 million years ago at what's called the Permian-Triassic boundary mm-hmm. that actually got rid of 90% perhaps of of certain marine biota, for example. I mean, monarchs and such like. I mean, the corals were hit badly and, and that was because of of lack of oxygen in, the, in, in, in our oceans. Now, that's a frightfully different mechanism from what happens with a bolide, you know, a meteorite hitting. So, two things emerge in response to your question. One, we don't need the equivalent of a deus ex machina situation coming upon our planet vis-a-vis the meteorite sure. with or without deus. But the other is that because these are frightfully different kinds of situations, there's no way you can predict what's going to happen in what Stephen Jay Gould would famously talk about as a drunken walk. Your constant species sort of wander between right. the edge of the precipice and here. And at some point or the other, everyone ends up in the gutter. Yeah. Right? We're just not entirely <laughs> certain how. Yeah. And there you are. So that's why, in this yeah. case, predictions are spot of an ass. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the thing is that a lot of these are understandable. So once you know that something has happened, a species, a keystone species getting taken out or so on and so forth, it obviously leads to a bunch of events which are understandable. No? No, here's the difference that needs to be drawn between the ecology of a moment mm-hmm. and an evolutionary principle, right? And the And the issue here is scale and the scale is time. Right. Right? So right. You might take a keystone species out. For instance, the dodo is hunted to extinction. Right. Now, the calvarious tree depends upon the dodo to feed upon the fruit. It goes through the gullet. Sure. The endosperm emerges. And it's, and so the future of that species depends is dependent on upon the dodo. Absolutely. It's now, an ecosystem. It's, it's ecology. an ecosystem in yeah. that particular case. But if you have an anomalous event that occurs, I mean, the keystone species 
becomes a very small part of a much larger issue. It doesn't matter if you've got uh, a large rodent playing a key species in the Brazilian rainforest if the entire Brazilian rainforest goes. Yeah, no, that's right. Fair. And, that's fair and, that's, and that's a point. So how, and so I think it's a question of scale. Yeah. I think my limited point there is that it's understandable. It's explainable. So if you take the dodo out, everything else that happens in the next 200 years is hopefully understandable. I mean, what? In that case, but that again is because we've been able to measure it. We know. And we've had a great deal to do fair. in this case with the extinction of that particular species. Sure, 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 sure. But then, I think, yeah. Sorry, but then what happens if there are things that you don't predict when you have a tsunami in 2004? Sure. It catches a lot of people unprepared. I mean, this is what Amitav Ghosh writes a great deal about in The Great Derangement, right? right? And he's talking about climate change and such like. And what seems strange in some sense is that for all our predictive capabilities we're still caught with our pants down every so often, right? <laughs> Katrina to, to everything, to Sandy, to wherever you are. So that's the question. What is predictable in the, in the ecological context, in the, in, the, in, the, in the context of the biota, in the context of a biosphere? What is relatively more predictable than the others? What can be more... Is it, is it, is it just a data question? Is it just a, like, will, will we be able to predict tsunami to a T in 200 years? I don't think so. I don't think so. Why is that the case, Jogesh Baba? Oh, that's because many factors are involved, and we didn't re- we do not we haven't understood. That completely. should make it just a more complex model, right? Yeah. Or or is that not knowable? That's the question. Oh, it's hard to say. <laughs> Where are you on that, VS? You know, I'll take uh, friendly exception to uh, Jogesh's comment. Please. Uh, I've not worked on tsunami prediction, but I've seen a little bit. Sure. of the work around it. And I suspect in 200 years, we'll be much better at predicting it. However, I am with both of you in agreeing there that there are going to be... There may be surprises, be, so that's yeah, quite okay. There are going to be surprises. Uh, there are going to be things that happen that we don't even think about predicting. Right. You know, and Absolutely. so, you know, I suspect that the arrival of the meteorite was a huge shock to the dinosaurs. Yeah. And we think they, they were stupid today, but they a had few million years data. later. They didn't, yeah. But you know what? Maybe a few million years from now, somebody else will think we were incredibly stupid. Yes. Uh, <laughs> after we've gone extinct. Yeah. Assume, I'm not saying we will, but sure. you know, we may not be as smart as we think we are. Yeah. Smartness is relative. Well, that's fine. That's fine. I think the question I have for you, Jogesh Babu, is that, for example, if we go to the astronomical context and the context you work in, a lot of that is detection, yes, uh, right? It's detection of what is happening out there. But how much of what you do can lead to prediction, which is like an event in the future? Uh, let me give two examples in Please. this case. One is um, Hubble in 20s. Uh, uh, he was not looking for universe expanding. He didn't even know that such a right. thing exists. He just looking at some star data from star, stars and then uh, comparing that with the redshift, the so-called redshift, etc. Then he realized that universe is expanding. That right. is, uh, each, uh, uh, on the average, all the uh, stars, galaxies, they are moving away from each other. Like sure. you know, dots on the balloon. And sure, sure, and so. sure. That is unexpected prediction, unexpected uh, uh, discovery. Whereas, if you recall, last year, 
they detected gravitational waves. Right. That was predicted by using mathematics and physical theory by Einstein 100 sure. years ago. That was a theoretical so, prediction. Theoretical prediction. And it took such a long time to discover existence of that. And several of my friends wasted their entire career on detecting it. Right, right. That is really the territory of trying to design experiments to yes. confirm what the theory says. Yeah, but to, in astronomy context, um, generally... I think in your case, for example, can you say that a supernova explosion is going to happen there nine years, seven months and 42 days later? Uh, this is going to turn into a black hole 79 years and three months and 43 days and two seconds later. I think that's the nature of question that I'm trying to pose oh, to you. okay. That w- we cannot in the sense that because we are not looking for it, which supernova is going to, because there's so many of them which sure. are going to explode. Sure. Unless you look for it and concentrate on a single thing sure. and we don't have resources to do the whole sky. Sure. So it's difficult, it's uh, almost impossible to uh, predict such a thing. I don't know. Uh, so yeah. I think the question phrased more generally, Jogesh Babu, would be what kind of astronomical events or occurrences are relatively more predictable? It's the same question I posed to VS in his context, the same question I posed to uh, John in the ecological kind of context. So what kind of astronomical events are more predictable at, at the present moment in time? And we'll see how that is progressing. Oh. about uh, whether there is a planet uh, which is habitable mm-hmm. that that we can predict and and where to look for it so you can predict exists. where to look for a planet Plan- yeah in the data we have so far how do you go about that and clearly so jogesh if i may interrupt for a second are you saying that you know if we sort of classify uh, the uh, universe into zones you're saying we could predict that this zone is likely to host a habitable location oh, this one from, is not yeah. is that is am i understanding that location correctly? of planets. not the whole zone not the whole zone the the data we have which is collected over uh, in our milky way galaxy mm-hmm. okay Fair we have about three data on 300000 star 200 or 300000 stars and looking at data we can see we can uh, predict whether there is a star which hosted planet that is uh, so which stars have the equivalent of solar systems which yes. which, yeah. which stars have the equivalent of planets or planets, something like that going yeah. around them going around them and also if they are too close they may not be able to sustain they life if be. they are too far they may not be so right zone that that's what so again the the nature of data that you have jogesh babu like we discussed a while yes, ago yeah. is photometric you essentially photometric. know how bright or faint they are ah. so how 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 ah, do you and get... also we also know the periodicity from that we also know the distance between the planet and the star sure there and we can infer a lot of other so things so you can know whether they are orbiting something yeah, something and, uh, mm. and which is clo- is it very close to the planet or very far from the planet uh, far from the star And but that would be is, only if other systems other solar systems let's call it that for lack of a better word are also similar to our solar system uh, they not, could be not quite not quite actually mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it depends for the example recently uh, they announced a system where you have about seven planets going around and three of them are habitable that is not like our solar system so how is it different uh, different is uh, there the stars uh, the planets to go around it very fast okay and they are very close so that you know like moon moon one 
surface always uh, uh, faces us Correct. we don't see the other side and the dark side of the moon is the dark side dark so, side we don't yes. see that like that these plants are so close we can say that they always face the uh, star or their sun in the same direction other right. side is dark right 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 so uh, on one side it is always uh, summer on one side it is always dark night sure, so sure. that kind of thing happens sure. so those things can be predicted by using the distance and the periodicity but if you take that the... data to john john would he be able to say which planets are habitable you and your colleagues i'm mean, not you not no, it was interesting i was actually listening to a professor's name i forget now who's from berkeley um east berkeley and and they were actually asking just this question and they were looking in the solar systems they were looking at venus they were looking at mars and they were looking at some of the satellites of jupiter so looking at europa and they were looking at io and such like and sure and they were saying what is it so habitable at what level um just for life just in a narcissistic sense for us you right. know at what particular level are we looking <laughs> yeah. right so sure. like a single celled animal an animal for instance mm-hmm. and sure. and the concept with venus tough no oxygen it's really low such like so not at all so that that's an us kind of situation but yeah, then that's for about, life like us yeah, for carbon yeah. and water based yeah. life yeah. you really don't know if yeah life in the universe is, is carbon resembles based, us precisely yeah, yeah, yeah. and that i think is a major limitation so would we recognize life of a particular kind if we did no, so no but if we were to start with that limited question which is also hopefully a worthwhile question so if we had to look for other solar systems and planets not necessarily like earth but with supported life like earth is that a question which if you had all the surveys that you do and obviously yeah. a lot more again there is a limited uh, uh, knowledge we have so we can only think in terms of carbon based life yes. we cannot think about any other life so that's the so question that's one the is problem. asking jobesh yeah. babu so uh, that's where this uh, uh, astrobiologists come in they astro- have biology, to put, astrochemistry you know, chemistry, all, all these yes. things yes. they have to uh, give their input in that so this is a uh, not a statistical question yeah. <laughs> yeah you know this comes back to the issue of imbalance yeah that i raised earlier yeah, we have only one example you haven't found out a, a culprit yet yes. which has the kind of life we are familiar with yes and many many examples of celestial bodies without the kind of life that we are familiar with and in the case of life we are unfamiliar with as far as i know we have no examples whatsoever So this is going to be a really huge challenge to predict uh now or in the future perhaps we will recognize some weird form of life if we see it I don't know uh because this is completely uncharted and unknown territory what is is there anything <laughs> mysterious about I will just get get to you John is there anything mysterious about the kind of data you capture because it's obviously not trying to deceive us like the butterflies yeah, yeah, or the no, no. <laughs> or the human beings so is there something else at work uh, that's or? because see you can think of uh, this as a, a statistical data, data collected so when you have large data you have you can infer better and better mm-hmm. uh, here we have only sample of size 1 Yes. <laughs> to think of it. <laughs> We cannot infer much about it. Which is the point it. VS was making. Yes. Yeah. It's like, you know, uh, three <laughs> blind men touching an elephant in different portions and desca- describing it in different fashions. So, sure. So and that a, is the only elephant ever known to yeah, be. Yeah, that's yeah. the only elephant to ever exist. <laughs> so you need to share intuition about the only, <laughs> only sample. So we cannot think beyond that. Yeah. No, that is fine. Difficult. I think the question is that mm-hmm. 
and, 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 and it's a slightly philosophical question. Yeah. So the nature of data that you and your colleagues, mm. astronomers and statisticians collect... Is there any mystery in there or uh, is it just mystery. like nice and clean and obviously it'll be very noisy? Uh, noisy and and very but uh, the only thing we can say is that, so uh, we know that uh, on Earth, life is uh, sustainable within certain temperatures yeah. and uh, under certain conditions. Yeah. We use that information yeah. to say that this is the habitable zone. So life is likely to exist in that zone if some planet falls in that uh, uh, orbit that's how we so infer. the nature of your data set hmm. is it is the is the chief attribute or the primary attribute that makes it different from the kinds of data sets that vs and john work yes. with is it just the fact that it's huge it's really 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 big really data huge and also there's a lot of input from domain science is important for example uh, when you look for a planet the data we get uh, is very noisy. Not only that, stellar activity is important. Right. And uh, planets are concealed in that stellar activity. Right. So, uh, how to separate the stellar activity from uh, orbiting planet? Right. That's where a lot of uh, statistics and domain science uh, is used to separate this. Right, right, right. So, not just at the level level no. of data capture, but also the level of analysis and interpretation Inter that must that's be... That's important, yeah. So, John, you had something to say. And I was completely taken by the conflation of astrobiology and UFOs, in some sense. <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and the reason I raise this is because that has formed fertile fodder for last day messiahs all the way across to some fairly compelling science fiction. Yep. And I draw attention to the latter because of the nature of possibility, right? So in some sense, if we were to encounter something for the very first time, mm -hmm. how do you deal? Now, one of the now a particularly thoughtful motion picture that was up for best film at the Oscars was called The Arrival. Yep. Right, and yeah. it, and the conceit in this particular movie is that you have different spaceships, if you will, for better them, emergent in different countries, including China, Russia, yeah, yeah. Pakistan, sure. United States, the UK, and these are all countries that aren't. I mean, for the most part, aren't particularly willing to say, "Okay, let's figure out a common solution," given geopolitical <laughs> realities, right? But what comes to the fore is when you recognize that there is a life form in them that you've never quite encountered before, do you use your own limits of cognitive possibilities to try to understand the other? Or is there something else that's emergent? Do you therefore use the toolkit of language? Do you say this is the, the working world in which we can understand the other? Are there possibilities whereby communication might be effective that stretches you? Right? So, and what's interesting here is this has nothing to do with big data. Yeah, absolutely. But it has everything to do with possibility. 
right? So now the story might be analogous to something else. Right. It might stay very much in the level of literature. Yeah. But the question is, how do we get informed by that particular pos- uh, by those particular possibilities? Ultimately, does imagination lie without this particular realm? Where did it stand in the world of big data and such like? So I'm just throwing that out right no, now. No, I think that's that's very interesting, right? Because in a sense, if we were to think of this very, very broadly as a rare event or a rare occurrence, uh, yes, yes, yes. You know, it. let me pick an analogy. Sure. You know, it's really hard as a computer scientist to compete with UFOs, uh, the <laughs> arrival of new species on our planet, etc. But let me give it a try, Okay. Um, One of the things we know in cybersecurity is the fact that so-called zero-day attacks, attacks that have never been seen before, Mm -hmm. are leave, you know, go undetected on average for over 300 days. And this is a study by a colleague of mine at Maryland uh, who reported this. Now, of course, please note that his study uses, which was data-driven, only uses data about the zero days that have been discovered. Right. The undiscovered zero days, of course, are not counted in this 312-day average because we don't know they exist. And these are real attacks? Real ones, yeah. Yeah. So uh, this was data from Symantec that he used, the cybersecurity firm. Now, in a sense, this zero day is much like the arrival of a new species on our planet where the analog is, you know, new species is analogous to the zero day, yeah, and the planet is analogous to the envir- the computational network into yeah. which the zero day has been injected. Um, our ability to detect these has been very poor, as you can see. You know, this is not a phenomenon we're unaware of. We know these attacks are going to come hard and fast at government networks, at major corporate networks, etc. Still, we cannot detect them. And just so that so, we understand this, VS, this is detection after 300 days or you understand it when it happens the second time? No, typically what happens is um, in the cycle, somehow it's detected at a certain point in time. Mm-hmm. And then you go back and look at your historical data and figure out when it first showed up on the system. Right. So and you, that difference is somewhere on the order of about 300 plus days. Sure. Now, if you look at different studies, that number might vary a little bit. Sure, sure. But in general, it's, you know, pretty close to 9 to 12 months. So would it be fair to say that you kind of infer or detect the first event, or the first attack, when the second attack happens? No, it's not a second attack. You detect it at some point. Sure. Not because an attack happens. So typically in these cases, just, I would suspect... Some manifestation. If there's an it, alien yeah. species that we're unable to detect that comes here, we're not able to detect them because they don't want to be detected. Yeah, so they're sitting here like the proverbial fly on the wall, yeah. and we have no idea this fly is there, right? And it, and Which is what's happening in what are called advanced persistent threats right. in networks. It's the proverbial fly on the wall, which is gradually sending data back to the perpetrator of the attack. So and if in the we same have been way, invaded by an alien, we might not, not know, even know until, it for a while. Until yeah. a while, yeah. yeah. So I think, and this problem of finding uh, aliens uh, who might come to planet Earth is much, much harder than what I already consider an incredibly hard problem, that of detecting these attacks in a much narrower environment. The Earth is much more complex than a computer system. Uh, the space of attacks is so large, we've never seen one, right? Uh, or at least to our knowledge. Right. Um, and so it's, uh, so let's it's ask like the, the mother question. of all zero days. Yeah. <laughs>
Absolutely. Let's ask the other question, Vyas. How predictable are we? How predictable is human behavior? What is your intuition on that after... Um, like, for example, you've done a little bit of work on terrorist attacks in a, in a certain context and in, in a certain zone. So what is at work there? What are the constraints you work with? And what makes it somewhat predictable and not, not so predictable? So when we started working on predicting terrorist behavior... Um, you know, and behavior of terrorist uh, networks and cells. People thought we were completely insane, uh-huh. okay? They said, human beings cannot be predicted. They are yeah. unpredictable. Well, it turns out that human beings tend to be constrained. And let me explain what I mean by constrained. Right. When you say something or carry out a particular action, your behavior is constrained by, you know, your ethics, it's constrained if you're a malicious actor by the risk of discovery and the fact that you don't want to be discovered. Yes. What this makes human beings is a little more predictable than we had thought they would be. I'm not suggesting that everything about human beings can be predicted, not by any means. So if the repercussions but, of an action are predictable, then the event itself... Uh, let me is give you an example. Visible. You yes. know, um, some years ago, we did a large project on identifying the locations of weapons caches mm-hmm. uh, in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. that were used during the Iraq war by insurgents mm-hmm. to carry out attacks on U.S. and coalition forces, mm-hmm. okay? And we use the fact that if an attack is carried out at a certain place, the attacker doesn't want to be too near the attack because if so, he would be, be within his, his, zone his of cash impact. should not be too near the attack because if so, it would be discovered during the subsequent, you know, surveillance and uh, search operations. He didn't want to be too far away either, because if so, he ran the risk of discovery in transporting the munitions from right. the location of the cache to the location of so the both attack. Both of these are different kinds so of these constraints. are two constraints, right. which were based really on human foibles yep. or human desires, that the desire of not being discovered. Yeah. Okay? And those constrained the locations where these caches were placed. Yep. And that enabled us to do a better job at predicting where those locations were than we would have been otherwise. Now, we used a bunch of other things that also constrained them, which I won't get into. But, but you could narrow your search space a lot. Exactly. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. Are there other astronomical bodies which are very, very, very difficult to detect? And not just because of the faintness problem. Um, are there other kinds of difficulties which make them difficult to detect? Yes, for example, this uh, the so-called gamma rays. Uh-huh. Gamma ray bursts. Uh, they were first discovered in the uh, 60s. Right. Uh, what happened was uh, uh, when US and uh, Russia, uh, so at, for, at the time, Soviet Union, they had this uh, treaty about nuclear arms. They right. want to spy on each other whether they are violating this or not. So sure. <laughs> US has spent, sent us lots of satellites uh, around the Earth. And uh, it collected some data. They thought that... Uh, uh, they didn't think much about it and uh, stored away the data. Right. And uh, one scientist uh, uh, went in and looked at the data and said that they look like some kind of explosion somewhere. Right. And then analyzed the data and found that they are not within Earth. They are not even within our solar system. They are extragalactic. So these were the gamma ray explosions. explosions. Then uh, in uh, 80s, they sent this satellite called... uh, Gamma ray burst data, uh, uh, Betsy, Betsy. Uh, 
and then they detected some gamma rays. The problem with gamma rays is you cannot pinpoint where they are coming from. Gamma ray camera is so wide, you right. cannot pinpoint. Right. So, but then they think, thought about it. It's like, you know, flashlight where in the dark, if you uh, 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 switch it on and switch it off after a while, you see afterglow yes. in a different uh, wavelength. Yes. So they were looking for this afterglow of that. That lasts for a long time, whereas gamma ray bursts just uh, for a microsecond or some couple of seconds, not more than that, right. unless you're looking for it. Right. They look as if they are randomly everywhere. So this afterglow, that swift satellite that was sent afterwards to look for this afterglows, uh, that's uh, run from Penn State. So they detected and pinpointed some of the sources of this gamma ray bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Why don't we spend the last few minutes thinking about uh, another kind of question, and that's probably closer to your territory, John. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a certain kind of background rate of extinction and species keep going in and out all the time. So if we had to take a shot at the extinction question, let's say in our context, in the context of human beings, or in the context of vast swaths of uh, human life, is it is it possible to predict that with a reasonably decent sense of accuracy of how likely are we to go extinct in the next whatever, pick, pick a time period? Uh, it could be a million years, it could be a thousand years, it could be 10,000 years, doesn't matter. Or is that a meaningful question at all? When one thinks of things in the in the in in the evolutionary time scales, in the in the kind of time scales that go beyond our lifetimes by by a vast order of magnitude. Well, man, <clears throat> Mark Twain looked at how long humankind had been on planet Earth. Uh-huh. He took the Eiffel Tower and he was saying, well, if you take the little needle and you take the skin off the very top of it, so to speak, that's how long we've been around. Yes. <laughs> I know. So, it's, um, well, the fact that we've had, however, one talks about it, the evolution of language be it Chomsky's language or or gradual arrival at this point in time, such that we can express things, it's been accompanied by a certain level of hubris, right? Which is... That's, and yeah. um, the fact is we've been around for a blink of an eye. The scary yes. part is that... We could be least, gone in the blink of an eye. We could, but the fact is, in that period, we have, so far as we know, been the only species that has exerted such a disproportionate influence upon everything else, right? So, is it possible to predict? It's a hard one. I mean, right now, I mean, we work in, I've used it before, in the Anthropocene, a term that geologists quibble about. Yeah. And that's largely because you say, where do you place your geological spike? Yeah. If you're looking at say we in broad terms you've had the Paleozoic, Mesozoic, Cenozoic I sure. mean after the KT boundary, the Kritish tertiary and we've had in some senses the explosion of the mammals, right? We're in a period called the Holocene which goes back to 13,000 years BP before the present Yeah Now, that's tiny but the question is if we include this particular record, the Anthropocene, is it coterminous with the Holocene? Yeah. Is it 
with the Industrial Revolution? Is it in the 1950s? when you've had the baby boom after the Second World War, and so you have seen things spike. Do we start looking at levels of global warming, for example, the Keeling Curve, where you've been looking from Mauna Loa, where they have the observatory, and he's coming, he's moving from California and studying this across time and just seeing increases in global warming. What happens if... But all of, a lot of these are really the territory of self-destruction where we kind of end up doing something to ourselves. But, that, but, but that's precisely your question, right? You're saying about us and our extinction. So what can we inhabit? Now, the question is to whom are you posing that question? In this case, me. But I'm saying that if you're looking at a, at a larger perspective and I was talking to VS earlier about whether you knew someone called Julian Simon who had... I don't recall if he was at College Park, but he was, he was an economist. And in the 1960s, a leading ecologist called Paul Ehrlich yeah, Stanford, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. wrote a book called The Population Bomb sure. and then followed it with The Population Explosion. And Julian Simon, an economist, said, humankind will always find a way. Yeah. That's right. So on the 29th of September, 1980, you probably know about this, there was a wager taken. Yeah. And they said, can you tell me, choose any five commodities, right? And predict in a 10-year period whether the price of this will go up or I down. Yeah. Right? And I think the choices were what? Copper, chromium, Nickel, tungsten, and tin. I mean, he just chose these. Sure, sure, sure. And at the end of 10 years, Ehrlich lost the bet. Now, it's interesting. There are a number of economic reasons that are beyond my ken. The arguments made it had they gone from 1990 to 2011, Ehrlich might have won the bet. But, you know, we could go extinct because of an astronomical event or a geological event. But that's completely unpredictable in that particular case. If that's the case, then that doesn't fall within the ken of that question, right? Because... There's always that, as I said, Deus Ex Machina yeah. or any ex machina that would do it, right? Yes, so, yes, yes. But we do know that even at current rates, we are in for trouble. If you're raising levels up to four degrees Celsius by, they said, the end of this particular um, century, That's it might fine. be by 2060, then that is scary without invoking an external cause. That's fine. We have other instances where you know that something is to happen, but you have no idea what. Like, is, is a, a rare event is going to happen in the future. And of course, a lot of these are extrapolation exercises. And if this is like a zero-day attack or the equivalent of a super rare event, then one doesn't get to that. But other instances where you know that something of extreme rarity is going to happen with a very high degree of confidence, but you don't know what. And I'm asking that in a very general context. Now, is there a way of, if you had all the data that you could have at your disposal, is there any way of predicting some of these ex machina events? I mean, um, I think there are cases mm-hmm. um, in, say, geopolitics mm-hmm. where you know that a country that's adversarial to yours will react to something, but you may not know exactly what that reaction will be. So we know cases where certain countries have launched cyber attacks in the aftermath of something they didn't like 
um, against a target. Right. Um, we know uh, that they have, you know, conducted uh, certain naval law border maneuvers right. in the aftermath of certain events they did not like. Right. And it's probably predictable that they're going to carry out one of many actions without knowing in advance exactly which one. Um, and that so really... you saying it's possible to know the, that because these motivations and factors exist. Right. And it yeah. sort of goes back to the game theory that John alluded to earlier. We know that they... And also the constraints that I alluded to earlier. When certain actions by one actor provoke another they are constrained by their domestic politics. Yes. They are constrained by the expectations of their population. Right. And they want to, they are constrained by the fact that they need to send a message yes. to whoever did whatever it is they didn't like. So there's path so, dependence to all this. Yeah. yeah. However, I don't consider that a very useful prediction. Yeah. You know, um, and the reason is it's a, a granularity that's so coarse <laughs> that it's not necessarily useful. Yeah. So I think uh, it is... Re Let me go back to this idea of predicting these one-off events. Mm -hmm. It's really very, very, very hard, if mm -hmm. not impossible to do it. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while... What makes you not call it impossible outright? Well, I'm one of these guys, uh, <laughs> like Joe Gaish, who wants to, you know, who acknowledges that he can be wrong. Alive. I can be wrong, right? <laughs> so I want to acknowledge that up front. Sure. Uh, like everyone else, I can be wrong. But let me say one thing. You know, um, rare events. Every time a rare event happens, I'll, a very good example is 9-11. Yeah. Okay? All these guys come out of the woodwork after the fact saying, I predicted it. Okay? Yeah. Prediction is not about being able to predict something once. Prediction must be something that is done consistently well, okay? Yes. As an example, somebody who came after 9-11 saying, I predicted this big attack, you know, my first question is, how many other things did you predict right? Yes. You know, did you predict 50 things before and this one thing happened to be right, right. and 49 were wrong? Right. Okay, I'd like to know those kinds of statistics. This is called false positives, okay? Yes. So you can recall the one event by getting almost everything you said wrong. Yes. Because you said so much that one of them was right. Yes. And then you turn around and say, I predicted that, okay? Yes. So you've got to be really, really careful. You're saying there and needs to be explanatory power in a lot of these... Explanatory power is very, very important. Yeah. Um, when you come up with a prediction, you need to be able to explain not just why... If you're a good scientist, you need to be able to explain not only why is my prediction right. Uh, people are very anxious to show that. Yes. But you also, also have to be very objective be and say, why could I be wrong? I mean, you know... If I'm making a high-stakes prediction yep. um, for, say, uh, uh, an investment bank, yes. the people investing money want to know what are the risks. Yes. Is this right? And if so, why does VS think it's right? Yeah. And VS, why do you think, you know, what could be the threats to this prediction? What yeah. could make it go wrong? Because that's what you must take both the pros and cons when that's making a great decision. point. That's a great point. We'll end with you, Jogesh Babu. Uh, the one question is... and. It, at least in the context of uh, both of these other situations, there is the data is riddled with many, many other factors. But if you were to look at just astronomical data, if you were to look at the night sky, and suppose we fast forward this 400 years, 500 years, and pick a point in time on whatever, 14th September, 2480, um, Night sky. Can you predict each and every star and where it'll be? Yes, we can. With precision. Precision. You can uh, the, replicate uh, the, the night sky. The, the sky that is visible to naked eye yes. can be predicted. With 100% accuracy. 
uh, there is a one uh, what's the one what's is uh, about uh, transients mm mm-hmm. for example halley's comet that comes every 75 years or so but you can do all of those things those as well things, right? but w- there may be a comet that was not that observed never earlier captured, so. ca- never captured and it may come in another 400 years Or so the that first we time, can't see yeah at least in in recorded history or whatever for the first time it may be recorded because uh, the recording of these events uh, started only about 500 600 years ago right so oh, we don't know if the orbit is uh, takes more than that much time sure. we cannot predict those things but most of the sky can be predicted where exactly which star stays especially the ones that are visible to me again there's something comforting about that isn't it i mean you, you you can say with meaningful accuracy what the night sky is going to look like yes 500 days out which is something yes. which is interesting see it also because of the knowledge we gained over the years for example eclipse think about eclipse about 500 years ago solar eclipse is considered as a bad omen right. people used to think that if that eclipse occurs something bad is going to happen to the uh, population but now we can precisely predict where and when it is going to start and when it is going to end making it predictable also makes it more comfortable more because comfortable. you explain yes. it you understand it yes. just a little bit more thank you i think that's a great note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look thank forward to having you soon again yes. thank you take care thank you <laughs>